Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Chris Chimes here. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thanks for the download and spending part of your day with us. And this is Ben Baldanza. We're glad you're here. And as always, we'll do our best to keep you informed and entertained. Let's get to some news quick, and then we're going to talk to David Sunday, the co-founder and CEO of Landline, which has found a way to avoid air traffic congestion and pilot shortages by providing bus service, or I guess I call it motor coach service, from smaller underserved airports to nearby hubs and connecting airports. Ben, let's first talk about unhappy pilots in the U.S. Delta's Apple unit has authorized a strike if contract negotiations don't deliver an acceptable agreement. Now, a strike is nowhere on the horizon as this is more of a leveraging tool than anything else at the moment, but it's a loud message. United's Alpha members have rejected a tentative agreement by a very wide margin for a new contract. It would have provided a 15% wage hike over three years. So back to the bargaining table for them. And then the Allied Pilots Association of American Airlines has rejected an offer of a 19% pay hike over two years. Meanwhile, Alaska Airlines is the outlier at the moment, getting a new deal ratified with its ALPA unit, which provided a 20% pay hike at signing of the agreement. So there's no questions here, Ben. I just want you to start talking. Well, I have to say I'm not surprised for a couple of reasons. We've been talking for the last year or more on this show, and it's been everywhere that there is a shortage of pilots, that the industry needs more pilots. So for the major pilots unions to feel that now they have maybe more leverage than they've had in the last couple decades isn't completely surprising to me. So the fact that they would push back at even numbers that look to most people like they might be reasonable says they're willing to sort of push this to see what's there. The other thing that is probably giving these pilots groups the gusto to do this is that there have been big raises at the low end of the scale. We've seen Mesa and other regionals start to pay their pilots like some of the bigger jet low-cost carriers pay. And if there's pressure on the bottom to pay more, that's going to push the higher paid, you know, bigger global airline rate scales up. So for all those reasons, it doesn't surprise me. The Delta strike authorization is something that most pilots do. Most people listening to this show probably know what the Railway Labor Act is and the fact that it takes a long time before it gets to the point 
where the pilots can strike or the companies can self-help. But what they're saying is that if it gets to that point, they would take a strike. And like you said, it is a strong message, but it's not a message that is new in this industry. Most of the times a deal isn't reached imminently. The group votes that way to again, increase their leverage. So this is a real interesting time in the industry. Industry wage costs have tended to run in the 35 percentage range of total cost for the airline or for an airline. My guess is that over the next couple of years, we're going to see that number push over 40%. And airlines are going to have to figure out what that means. Do fares go up to cover this? Do they think of other ways to mitigate costs by using more technology, using fewer people in other places, doing other things they can to sort of offset here so they can pay pilots more? But clearly, there's a sense that labor costs in the industry led by pilots are clearly on their way up. And from these reports that you just reported on, Chris, we see all of them recognizing that and we'll see where they end up signing soon. So a few things to add to that, Ben, if I could. One, it's not just a pilot shortage, it's inflation and a competitive job market. So wages are going up everywhere. So you got to layer that on top. I think the Alaska deal and the immediate pay hike that rather than a step up kind of a situation over three or four years, I think that kind of sets the bar and some expectations. So, you know, a 5% per year uh, adjustment in normal times would be kind of generous, but right now I don't think people are thinking 5% is all that great. So there's a bunch of factors at play here. And, um, you know, we've talked about it a lot and investors are talking about it a lot and executives are talking about it a lot. Um, as we come out of this pandemic and there's a really changing economic dynamic around the industry, labor rates are going to be impacted. Ben, last week, kind of related to this, you refereed the debate between Scott Kirby United and Barry Biffle from Frontier about the prospects of ultra-low-cost carriers in an era of rising fuel costs, inflation, and labor pressures. And you sided with Barry Biffle saying that ultra-low-cost carriers will always win. So how do you explain Allegiant's second consecutive quarterly loss I just reported last week? Only Allegiant and Hawaiian have reported losses for the major U.S. carriers in Q3. Well, I didn't say that the ULCCs will always be profitable, Chris. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple things driving Allegiance results. Number one, they are the most leisure of any airline. Their flights exist really to pull people in planes that otherwise wouldn't fly from many of the cities they fly to, that's true. And their model is very discretionary based. I'm not saying that that's 
that different than a spirit and frontier. But since they serve much smaller cities on average, it really accentuates that for them. I also think because of that, they're more subject or their demographic is more subject to the general inflationary pressures that the country's seeing everywhere. So the people that live in the towns, they fly from many of the small ones, you know, maybe Allegiance the best way for them to fly, but when they're paying more for groceries and gas and everything else they buy, maybe they're not flying as often right now. And it's not that they're going to go off and pay United's high prices because Allegiance labor costs have gone up, which is basically the Scott Kirby argument, but it might be hurting Allegiance route network more. And the last thing is Allegiance Network, even though it has grown and it has expanded, it still is disproportionately impacted by a couple big cities, including Las Vegas, Orlando, and others. Orlando had all the weather impacts that Florida's had over the last month or so, and I'm sure that hurt them. There's other things that could be going on in Las Vegas that may be affecting travel in and out of there. So I don't think their loss changes the general nature of the Biffle-Kirby argument some, but there certainly could be some specifics about Allegiant's position and network that made it tougher for them to make money this quarter. Still doesn't mean I'd bet against them long term. Professor Baldanza, I'll let you have all your say, and I agree I wouldn't bet against them, but uh, I just will add that if a leisure carrier can't make money in the third quarter of the year, they've got some fundamental issues to work through. So um, you know that, that's their bread and butter, and even with softening demand, uh, perhaps from discretionary travelers, every plane was full. The demand we saw was strong, fears were up, and so they've got to go back and sharpen their pencils, I think. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. And Airlines Confidential would also like to thank Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company and the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. Ben, here in the U.S., the Transportation Security Administration is getting ready to celebrate its 21st birthday. I think we should toast to them with a miniature tequila bottle from the beverage cart since that won't set off the scanning machines. TSA has been previewing some of the changes that are coming online in the next generation of technology and processes. Nearly 100 airports have a new generation of scanning machines that allow passengers to keep their toiletries in their suitcase 
if they do not have TSA pre-check, but they still can't exceed the 3.4 liquid ounce requirement. New scanning machines will still require passengers to take off their coat. The technology still doesn't allow the machines to penetrate through the multiple layers of clothing to compare a consistent skin tone or something that's altered that consistent skin tones, like something smuggled under your clothing. Again, if you don't have pre-check, you will continue to have to remove your shoes, although they're hopeful of making some exceptions. TSA engineers are saying that there are just too many different materials and styles of shoes to provide a consistent standard for screening, so the default is to ask passengers to remove their shoes if they don't have pre-check, although they seem to be indicating they'll start to make some exceptions along the road. And then there's more supplication coming as more than 1,300 document checking podiums already have technology in place that allow the TSA agents to clear the passenger just by scanning the passenger's driver's license or passport. No boarding pass is required. I know that's a nice feature I experience regularly at Miami International Airport and the American Airlines Terminal. So as I ramble here, there's a question, Ben. People like to complain about TSA. The agency is an easy punching bag. I want you to say something nice about them. Well, I will say something nice about them. They're moving in the right direction, right? And I, too, have used that feature where they've only had to scan my ID, not look at my boarding pass to know who I was and let me through based on that. And that's great. I think it's terrific that they're upgrading their technology and working these kinds of ways to try to make it easier. I do worry, though, Chris, about the new scanning machine on the toiletries. And let me tell you what I worry about. When you have to remove them in your, you know, gallon Ziploc bag or whatever it is to put your things, you realize that everybody's going to see what you have there. Even though they say a million times over you can't have more than 3.4 ounces, I bet there's going to be people who say, well, since I don't have to take it now, I'm going to take more or a bigger bottle. The new machine will catch this. But now instead of just pulling the bag out, and the plastic bag out and say, can we talk about this? They're going to have to pull the whole piece of baggage out, say, whose is this? Open it up, look through it, and that could delay the lines somewhat. So it's a great way to go and eventually is a better way to do it. But I think over the first six months or so of using this, there are going to be people who try to get away with things that the machine doesn't let it, let them get away with, and that can slow things down. So TSA still has a long way to go, but I like what they're doing here. Some of this is helpful because they too have been having labor issues and aren't always fully staffed everywhere. So when they can scan people more quickly or allow you to keep your shoes on or things like that, that helps them get people through faster, which allows them to deal with their own staffing shortfalls some way. So this is really great progress, and I'm not being facetious when I say this is a good move in the right direction, Chris. Well, we've talked about this before. 21 years after the fact, there are still 
probably hundreds, if not thousands of people every day who try to take a big bottle of shampoo or a big bottle of sunscreen or something and have no idea about the limitations. So to your point, it's, it's not going to solve anything and it's probably going to have some uh, kinks to work out uh, as this gets rolled out. Next up, we'll be talking about flying buses with David Sunday from Landline. But not before a reminder that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're excited to have with us today David Sunday, who's the founder and CEO of Landline, a very innovative company that's providing bus service to connect to airlines. So David, welcome to the show. Tell our listeners about your background and how you got into this space. Yeah, well, Ben, Chris, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, the chance to be on this pod as a weekly listener uh, and share our story. So thank you. Um, like uh, many airline geeks, um, I got my start, you know, as an airline network planner, um, as did my my co-founder Ben, and spent some time at Alaska Airlines and a startup carrier called Surfair, where I just learned a lot about how challenging the economics of flying small airplanes to small cities was becoming over time, both because of the pilot supply issues that I know everybody knows about, uh, but also just because, you know, the little propeller planes or small jets that we used to fly, you know, 20 years ago, for the most part, reaching the end of their useful life. And so I, with my business partner, took that knowledge and experience um, and decided that maybe not all regional airlines needed to fly airplanes. Um, and that's really the foundation for Landline's business model. Um, we are a regional carrier in every sense of the word. We provide, you know, feed uh, to major major network carriers uh, in a really unique and seamless way. The one kind of important asterisk is that instead of using a 50-seat jet, uh, we use luxury motor coaches that seat 35 people. So, David, let's, let's tap into that a little bit more. Explain the services you provide specifically and how it works for both consumers and airlines. Sure. So, you know, again, the easiest way to think about it is just a regional airline uh, that just doesn't operate airplanes. So um, just like any other, you know, affiliated independent regional carrier like SkyWest or Republic or Mesa, uh, we operate under our partner airlines brands and we allow airlines to add routes to their network without having to use airplanes. For the customer, uh, the experience is identical uh, to how you make any other connecting flights. So you go on Google Flights or Expedia or, or the airline's website, wherever you prefer to buy airline tickets. I'll just use as an example, um, Allentown. So you would type in Allentown as your origin on AA.com, Orlando as your destination, and AA.com or United.com for that matter in Allentown uh, will populate for you a connecting flight itinerary um, that shows a connection in either Philadelphia or Newark. When you go to check in for your flight, you get two boarding passes. 
one for the motor coach, one for your plane. And when you show up to check in, um, you can actually check your bags all the way to your final destination, just like any other flight. Today, if you're going to the spoke city that Landline serves, um, so if you're going Orlando to Allentown, as an example, when you land and you're connecting Hub City, you actually never have to leave the sterile area. So our vehicles pull right up to a gate, uh, just like any other any other airplane. Uh, some of my favorite pictures for for Twitter are you know landlines floating around <laughs> big airport tarmacs, and then hopefully in short order uh, the reverse will be true. So uh, today, if you show up at Allentown, you do actually take the vehicle to Philadelphia or Newark and clear at the hub. Uh, but we've been working with TSA and our airline partners for quite some time now to work on procedures that will allow you to actually clear security in the outstation, get on a motor coach, and then make an airside connection at the hub. So two quick follow-ups, uh, David. If you're connecting, does the airline take your bag? If you've checked a bag, do they take the bag to the motor coach on the, on the tarmac? That's exactly right. So your bag transfers from airplane to motor coach uh, and vice versa seamlessly. So are people showing up at Allentown, for example, looking for an airplane? <laughs> so actually, we, we do pick up and drop off for the most part at airports. We have a couple special uh, special places we can, which we can talk about. Obviously, one of the benefits of buses is that they don't need runways. But in a place like Allentown, where the airport facility is awesome and spacious and has a ton of extra checkpoint capacity, we pick you up uh, right there next to the airplanes. I love the disruptive nature of what you're doing. And it seems like such a much more efficient way to serve flights that are, are what used to be flights, you know, in relatively short distance from the hub. Tell us what airlines you're working with right now if we want to use your service. Absolutely. So today we work with three U.S. carriers. We work with American Airlines. We uh, serve three routes from their Philadelphia hub. Uh, we work with United Airlines um, in both their Denver hub and their Newark hub. Uh, and then we work with Sun Country Airlines in their Minneapolis hub. Who was uh, the instigator of the relationship? Uh, so our, our very first airline relationship was Sun Country. Uh, we have a, an amazing relationship with them. Uh, we've been able to, to work together to try all sorts of unique multimodal connectivity options. Um, you know, at one point during the pandemic, we were actually uh, loading scheduled flights uh, that were operated by four-seat Escalades. So uh, we've had a, an amazing partnership with them. They really helped us get off the ground. And I think... You know, that partnership um, is where we were first able to prove to people that, you know, at the end of the day, sort of holding experience constant, customers are booking an amount of time they want to travel and an amount of money that they want to spend. And while it is maybe a little hard initially to get over the idea that the first flight you're buying is actually going to be on a motor coach, customers love it. And if it means that they can save money, if it means that they can have a more reliable trip to the airport, that they're going to they're gonna do it and they're going to do it again because they like the experience. And that was just essential for us um, in making this a, a concept that other uh, other network carriers were con would consider using. So, David, to that point, what is the resistance you might be uh, encountering from sure. consumers, for example? Yeah, you know, um, 
I will tell you that I, I spend a pretty decent amount of time out in our network. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to tell you that every single customer immediately completely understands that one of their legs is not on an airplane. But I think the, the, the whole point of this is that when you're flying a, a small aircraft, you know, maybe you're making money on the last seat. Maybe if you're lucky. Maybe you're not making money at all, which means you have absolutely no room to spend on product or experience. That's not the case with the motor coach. Motor coaches are much more efficient than small airplanes. You know, when you think about gate to gate time instead of, you know, takeoff to touchdown time, they really don't cost you that much time. Um, and because the business model is so much better, you know, we can afford or our partners can afford to invest in hard product that's amazing. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone kind of show up at the gate. You know, they're kind of looking at this American or United bus or some country bus, and they're like, you know, kind of what, what's going on here. And then the door opens, they get on the vehicle, they see that it's, you know, three abreast seating with 35 inches of pitch, power in every seat, Wi-Fi, uh, tray tables that you can actually like put your computer on. Um, and all of a sudden it doesn't really matter that it's, you know, not an airplane. In fact, I think a lot of people would prefer our experience to getting on, you know, a small regional jet where they can't even stand up without hitting their head. So I think for, for customers, um, it's all about when, when there is resistance, it's kind of quickly overcome by our hard product. And in fact, we measure our customer satisfaction scores obsessively. And I think we knock pretty much any other regional jet out of the water when it comes to customer satisfaction. You know, where we see resistance, I think it's really more in the kind of airport world um, where people are not quite accepting yet that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if it's a bus or an airplane. It's about generating passenger throughput on, you know, air carrier ticket stock. I think that we're at this point in a place where our kind of customer acceptance um, is, is actually really high and, and only growing. Well, can you go a little more into that? Tell us about the kind of feedback you're hearing from customers. I imagine they love the Wi-Fi and they love the room. And you said they're getting used to the fact that they're going to walk on a bus. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the, the feedback, I, I think it's important to say uh, first, like who, who, are, what, who is our customer and kind of like what are their alternatives? Because I think that's like important to understand. You know, in most of our markets, people are choosing to drive to the airport, even if there is existing air service outside of what, you know, what landline's offering. Um, if you look at all of our spoke cities, the overwhelming trend is that most people are not using their local airport. They're getting in their car and they're driving. And so if you want to like, you know, delight a customer, if you want to get them to use their, your service... Um, it really comes down to building a product that's better than their own car. Part of that's really easy because you don't have to drive our buses. We drive them for you. So if you're a business traveler, you know, I consistently hear how excited people are to get a couple hours of, the, of their day back. But the biggest part of it is really the stress relief. You know, driving to the airport, wondering if you're going to make it on time. It's really stressful. And it's stressful if you're a business traveler or if you're with your kids um, on your way to vacation. Um, and the, the really cool part about landline is that since it's completely integrated into the airlines, uh, booking system, you know, we're basically guaranteeing you an amount of travel time and we're going to guarantee your connection. So just like any other connecting flight, if, 
you know, if our vehicle on I-70 coming back from Breckenridge hits a ton of traffic on a Sunday, you're not stressed thinking about what's going to happen in Denver. You're going to be automatically rebooked on the next flight. Um, and that idea that my time is protected, stress is taken away, that's that's really where we win for customers. That's, you know, that's the consistent feedback that I hear. More with David Sunday in just a moment. I wonder if our friends at Sidley Austin have a motor coach practice. Sidley is the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. And I bet they will do work for Landline too, because they are an aviation company. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. So a couple things on the consumer side. Are you earning frequent flyer points or miles? And are you, are you getting tagged with PFCs at airports? Two great questions. Um, on the customer side, you can earn and burn miles um, across all of our partnerships. On the airport side, I think you bring up a, just a whole, uh, a whole realm of interesting questions. You know, because we're essentially trying to take a, <laughs> something that isn't an airplane and sort of stick it in the infrastructure that supports flying, the entire conversation around how airports are compensated for our service is, is complicated. Uh, we don't generate a PFC by, you know, by the statute of the law today. Um, it doesn't mean we don't have business agreements with the airport. It doesn't mean that we don't want to compensate the airport for their, um, for their work. But, you know, every airport you talk to, especially ones um, that are really, you know, thinking about their AIP grant money and the number of employments they have every year, um, that's the first question they ask. And that can be a place where it, it can be tricky for us to demonstrate that, you know, our service is actually better for them in most cases than the equivalent service that'd be offered by a small airplane. Well, that's really interesting. Are you worried that, you know, a very creative airport director like Christina Casotis of Pittsburgh is going to find <laughs> a way to get you to pay PFCs? You know, I, uh, I, I got to tell you, Ben, I don't worry about it too much because I'm a lot more concerned about just the kind of the general airport community understanding that the future of, of short haul regional travel sort of at this point, it's in my opinion, it's a foregone conclusion that it will be multimodal airports of all sizes. You know, I don't care if you're Brainerd or Bemidji or Beaumont or Baltimore for that matter, you know, multimodal connectivity is going to be part of the portfolio you have on the airfield. I think the regulatory stuff will figure itself out later. What I want to show people is that, um, you know, particularly if you're an airport that's vulnerable to losing air service, you know, the number one thing, the number one most important thing in your world has to be maintaining connectivity to an airline network and putting people through your terminal on airline ticket stock. It, it really doesn't matter if it's a CRJ 200 or a, you know, Metroliner or whatever on the other side of that fence. The, you know, the number one most important thing is that people are going through your airport having purchased airline tickets because if you can maintain throughput, 
you know, that's going to get picked up in the DOT data. People are going to remember how to use your airport code. It's going to keep your airport, you know, alive, so to speak. It's going to keep it in the system. And I, I think a lot of times, you know, conversations I have with airports, they're so caught up in whether or not it's an airplane, they lose sight of the fact that, you know, the, the infrastructure doesn't know the difference. It's just there to process people, you know, particularly in a market that's really vulnerable to drive divert. You know, the only way to get people off the road is to have a product that has the schedule frequency and the price um, that's competitive with someone's car. And at this point, you know, that's just no longer an airplane. That's going to be a, a landline. So are any of your airport customers or anyone you're in discussions with thinking about landline as an alternative to essential air service and having really great connectivity from their local airport to a to a feeder airport versus air service? And could they could you get subsidies for that? So another super interesting question. The the short answer to your question is that there is a program in EAS called Alternate EAS that does currently today allow for the idea that service can be not on an airplane. The mechanics of how that works are a little bit uh, a little bit tricky because to do alternate EAS, the community essentially needs to put forth a competing bid. Um, so they'd be they'd be making a decision to use federal subsidy money not for an airplane, um, which I think is maybe still a step too far for most for most um, airports. You know, when I step back and look at it. Again, particularly for markets that are within 250 miles of a big hub, when I look at the federal subsidy results for most of those markets, I, I don't think that spending that money on an airplane is the highest, best use of taxpayer money because typically, you know, a two or three million dollar subsidy at this point can only pay for one or two trips a day uh, or two, maybe three trips a day on a small regional jet. And sort of like I was saying earlier, if we know in these markets that the number one competitor whether or not you're flying an airplane or driving a bus, your number one competitor is people driving themselves. And the only way to get people out of their car is to have a lot of frequency, you know, at least one trip into every, every bank. And so I look at some of the subsidy levels in these communities that could easily cover, you know, a lot more landline capacity and for the same amount of money uh, offer a much higher level of throughput for the airport. And I think that's a huge opportunity for, for landline, obviously, but it's, in my opinion, it's a really big opportunity for the Department of Transportation um, to incentivize behavior in the market that actually maximizes throughput um, instead of maximizing airplane landings, if that makes any sense. To your point, David, especially if these passengers are all boarding the buses on the air side, they're parking at the airport, they're perhaps spending some money at concessions, even small airports have concessions and the like. So they're still generating some revenue that they were, they would be losing if, like you said, they're just driving directly to the, to the hub airport. Exactly. The amazing thing about the U S is all the airport infrastructure we have sitting out, out in the countryside, largely doing, doing nothing. And the more that we can push traffic away from constrained hubs into the into this amazing infrastructure we've built, the better for everyone because we don't you know we don't necessarily need to go spend a bunch of money figuring out how to expand every hub airport checkpoint. We just need to have the right incentives and the right business model such that the small satellite airports in big cities can be more effectively used as uh, relief valves. And I think you know for the last ten or fifteen years because 
the short haul aviation business model has been so challenged um, that just hasn't been able to happen. And so I think a, a lot of what I spend my time doing, honestly, is engaging with airports and convincing them of exactly what you just said, Chris, which is it just airplane bus like does not matter. Uh, the number one most important metric here is number of people going through your checkpoint, number of people parking in your parking lot, number of people using your concessions. And the kind of industry reality today means that likely that's going to involve multimodal connectivity. Well, so it gets to the obvious question, which is how long will people sit on one of your motor coaches? You know, do you, some of the EAS flights would be like a five or six hour ride, whereas some of them might be an hour and a half or so. What right. do you think is the sweet spot for your service in terms of distance and time? It's a it's an awesome question, and to be honest with you, Ben, I think we're still learning the li- the limits. I always joke uh, with my co-founder that someday we'll have a red eye bus, uh, you know, a, a truly overnight service from you know, I don't know somewhere in northern Wyoming or something. But the answer, based on what we know today, is that the like the density of opportunity is probably around ninety minutes of travel time. That's like that's perfect for us, with the important caveat that. You know, we operate two routes today, Duluth, Minneapolis and Breckenridge, Denver, that both block at three plus hours. And we see absolutely no deterioration of our customer satisfaction scores on those routes. Probably unique places, you know, I-70 is just an extremely challenging place to drive if you're uh, <laughs> if you're not from Colorado. I was going to say if you're from Texas, but that feels like a cheap, a cheap joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that is true. And, uh, and Duluth is, you know, another place that's just somewhat kind of geographically isolated, but I think it's probably, you know, three, four hours is probably the maximum 90 minutes is probably perfect. There's multiple essential air service markets, many, um, that are capped at $200 per person and subsidy level based on how close they are to, to their neighbor hubs. And those are, those are perfect places for, for landline to work. So, David, we were talking before the recording that you're a regular listener of, of the podcast, so you know that we talk a lot about the pilot shortage. Is your phone starting to ring a little bit more from potential customers? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that um, it's just the, the general way that the airline industry is shifting, pilots, of course, being one input, um, I think is it's becoming more open-minded to, to multimodal connectivity. Obviously, the pilot wage dynamics are going to incentivize bigger aircraft to be operated over time, but big network carriers still need something in the 30 to 50 seat gauge, um, and we we have a great product for that. Um, outside of the you know the pilot situation, I do think there's other pressures that are new. Um, the environmental and you know incentive is very important, I think, to most airlines now. I know that people look at a diesel motor coach and the first thing they, they probably don't think, you know, green immediately, but relative to a CRJ 200, it's a 90% uh, emissions reduction on the same trip. So yes, we are like, a, you know, the cost structure for short haul is great. We're definitely the most practical and available, you know, green travel solution that, um, that exists today. And then I think there's just this other you know, part of the of the customer experience where every airline, for the most part, wants to grow in big hubs, where the customer experience suffers from, 
infrastructural constraints. And so that's another reason why people call us is that we can essentially help push, uh, push the airport clearing experience away from places where it's really hard to change the physical footprint of, of an airport. David, I've got a geeky question to ask you, which is, you know, you've talked about feeding hubs, which makes perfect sense. But as you know, there are also a lot of medium and smaller cities in the U.S. that the local airport doesn't have a single dominant player. Sure. Maybe like a Syracuse, New York and upstate New York where I'm from. Lots of airlines serve Syracuse, but it's not that big. Do you think there are planners yet in the industry thinking about how they can use your service to essentially create better stickiness to their product in those kind of places by serving markets that were never flown by an airplane before, but are in that one to two hour range where people drive? It's such a good question. Um, I, I'll i give you the, the, the quick answer, Ben, is you know I think today, uh, just because there's so much investment in the hub uh, infrastructure for most carriers, it's just where all their attention is. So we haven't had a lot of serious conversations about kind of the the secondary to tertiary connectivity yet. I think it's a great use case for us. I think like one of the benefits, I guess another benefit of a lower cost structure is in theory, you don't need quite as big of a connecting bank to generate enough demand to fill the vehicle. And so, you know, old, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, like the old scissor hub structures or whatever in, in like Tokyo, you know, where you had like a couple 747s connecting to one beyond trip. I like you could totally see the same thing existing for us where a couple mainline aircraft probably, you know, from hubs are coming to a city like Columbus and then, you know, there's something beyond that we can connect to. But like I said, I think just given where people's priorities are today, we don't have a lot of those conversations going on right now. But it, it is a great idea. So, David, the doors are about to close. Uh, you got 15 seconds to give your final plug uh, to an airline planner. What do you want to tell them? <laughs> I it's it's an easy choice, Chris. I think you know we're the only platform that's a win for customers, a win for the bottom line, and a win for the environment. That's all available today. So that's all you need to know. Well, this has been a great conversation. We appreciate your uh, spending some time with us, and I think uh, you've shared some good information for our listeners. So. David, thanks again. We wish you the best of luck at Landline. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Fantastic idea. And it sounds like you're implementing it in some really interesting ways. Well, we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Thanks again to David Sunday for a very interesting conversation. Time for some listener questions now. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Chris, we've got a question from JP in Chicago. 
I love your podcast. It's very informative and your guests are wonderful. My question is about catering. Why don't catering companies use refrigerated delivery trucks to deliver catering to planes? There is a dry ice shortage and the planet is warming. Chris, is this a good idea from from JP? Well, JP, thanks for the question. You had me kind of scratching my head a little bit to how to go about this. Um, I have flown a few times the past uh, 10 days or so, and I've asked the flight crews about this, and they seem to think that a lot of their catering is coming in refrigerated trucks because the food especially has to be uh, kept cold for delivery, especially in the summertime when it's out on the hot ramp. But with regard to the dry ice issue, one, I didn't realize there was a shortage, but to your point about it somehow impacting global warming, dry ice actually doesn't contribute to global warming. I found multiple references that although dry ice is made from solid carbon dioxide, it never produces or releases carbon dioxide into the environment. So as it turns into a gaseous form, it doesn't contribute to the greenhouse effect. So we'll still keep trying to ask how much of catering relies on dry ice versus refrigerator trucks. But as it relates to dry ice's impact on global warming, I don't see the connection, but maybe you're right on that too. And Chris, I'll let you take this one too. It's from our friend Yoni in Seattle. Why does Ketchikan, a city of 8,000 people, get eight flights a day on Alaska Airlines 737s, both to Seattle and Anchorage, while cities like Rhinelander, Wisconsin, another city of 8,000 people, gets only two flights a day on a CRJ-200 to Minneapolis? There's no way Alaska Airlines can fill those planes to make money, or is their EAS subsidy higher? Why not contract with a different carrier with smaller planes? I understand there's no alternatives in many parts of Alaska to flying, but why so much air service? It's incredibly disproportionate to the L-48. Chris, this sounds like you can tee off on the EAS again. What do you say? (laughs) Well, there's a big political backstory here as well. Uh, Yoni, thanks for the question. You've stumbled on the... um, the power of a couple of former senators, Ted Stevens from Alaska and Daniel Inouye of Hawaii is my guess, uh, with regard to how the EAS program was established and also how it was changed over the years. But essentially, Hawaii and Alaska are carved out from most of the exceptions, although Hawaii really doesn't have a lot of EAS service because it's not like they're going to have EAS service from Honolulu to Los Angeles. But there is a cap of $200 per person for the lower 48 states, unless a city or town is more than 210 miles from the nearest large or medium-sized airport. Also, to be eligible for EAS funding, the airport must be able to sustain an average of 10 employments a day, except in Alaska and Hawaii. So my guess is there is actually a fair amount of travel for Ketchikan to be able to sustain that level of service. They're filling the planes at some level. There isn't a cap like there is for the lower 48. There's probably a fair amount of cargo lift as well. 
Um, but what this really underscores is the exceptions for Alaska. As you point out, Yoni, they, they are an exception just by geography and their lack of options with air service being so critical. Um, but um, they've been able to be carved out from multiple changes over the years. Good research, Chris, and I agree with you. And I bet your cargo statement is exactly right. I bet that's what makes most of those 737s work for Alaska to catch a can, but wouldn't work the same way to Rhinelander because they could just take a truck to Minneapolis or some other place. Yep. Well, with that... Another show's coming to an end, and I'm going to give my shout-out this week, Chris, to the Silver Line on the Washington Metro. On November 15th, the line opens all the way to Dulles Airport, and you can take the Washington Metro to Reagan National, you can take it to Union Station, but Dulles has not been online, but will come online on the 15th, and I'm eager to see how that may change the traffic at some of these airports in the Washington region. If you live in Tyson's or are coming from work in the Tyson's Corner area, for example, you have the option to take Metro to Reagan, but you don't have the option to take Metro to Dulles, even though Dulles might be actually closer as the crow flies. So I think it's a great extension of the line. Shout out to the Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority, known as WMATA, for finally getting this line open, and it's great for Dulles Airport. Well, and as we record this, I'm sitting in a hotel room in Tyson's Court in Virginia looking out at the Metro line. So um, I'm leaving before November 15th, but I wish them well. That's a great shout out. I'm going to give another shout out like I did last week to our friends at Avello Airlines. They announced another new market, and this is one that's close to my head and heart. Uh, my wife's hometown of Dubuque, Iowa. They've been without air service since American Airlines pulled out, and uh, they're going to be flying from Dubuque to Orlando. There's still no connections to major airports. I think our friends at Landline ought to look closely at Dubuque and getting people from Dubuque into Chicago. Um, I've actually taken plenty of buses between Dubuque and Chicago as well when air service didn't work out. So anyway, good luck to them and hope it's a successful venture uh, starting after the first of the year. Great shout out, Chris. Thank you all for listening this week and we'll see you all next week on Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.